Scripture reading before the lesson will be taken from John chapter 1. We'll be reading John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. That's on page number 886 of the Red Bible in the pew in front of you. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's good to see you this morning. I know we've got a number of visitors, uh, family in town to visit other family, and we're especially thankful that you've come to be with us this morning. This is the second part of a two-part lesson that we began last Sunday morning dealing with Jesus. And I just want to talk to you this morning about who Jesus is. You know, a lot of people are paying attention to Jesus at this time of the year, and I appreciate that. Did you know that when the angel spoke to the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born, the angel went out and he said to the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. A Savior is born. And I want to talk to you this morning, as we did last Sunday morning as well, about the fact that Jesus is a Savior. He came to rescue us. He came to save us from our sins. And that's what is most significant about Him. And when we think about who Jesus is, it's important for us to keep our eyes on Him. Your destiny, your future is written by where you put your focus by what you put your eyes on. For someone who is driving down the road, wherever you decide to put your eyes, that's where the car ends up going, isn't it? And when we think about our lives, the same principle is true. Whatever we spend our time focused upon is where our lives will end up. Because that's true, we need more than ever before to fix our eyes upon Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Sirs, we would see Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 21. People need to focus on him. And so, as I said, this morning is the second part of a lesson that began last Sunday morning. And what we're doing is just looking through the chapters of the Gospel of John. Open your Bibles there if you haven't already done so. And what we're doing is taking one verse out of each chapter of John and showing a different facet, a different picture of who Jesus is, of what he's really like. It's a valuable way to study the Gospels. In John chapter 11, where we'll begin this morning, and if you've got a pew Bible and you're, you're, you're kind of struggling with where to find it, it's on page 898, 898 in your pew Bible. As we think about who Jesus is and ask the question, what is so wonderful about the Savior that God sent? 
Let's begin with this verse. If you're looking at John chapter 11, let's notice verse 43 this morning. John chapter 11, verse 43. Let me preface this by saying that Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who died. And not only did Lazarus die, but they wrapped him up and they buried him. They were, they were finished with Lazarus. Nobody thought they were ever going to see Lazarus again. But Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead. And I want you to read John 11, verse 43. When Jesus arrives at the tomb, he cried out with a loud voice, it says in John eleven forty-three, 43, Lazarus, come forth. What do you learn about Jesus from this one verse? He is deliberate with his words. It is significant that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. You know why it's significant? Because if Jesus had merely said, come forth, every dead person who was in the graves would have come forth. But Jesus specified, Lazarus, I'm speaking to you. His voice is powerful, friends. His voice spoke the world into existence in Genesis chapter 1. He created all things by the power of just speaking them. Let there be light. Let there be land divided from the seas. Let there be birds and fish and animals. Let there be man made in my image. He spoke the world into existence and his words are still powerful today. Lazarus, come forth. Jesus thought about the words that he used and he used them like no one else ever has. No one ever spoke like this man, John 7, verse 46. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jesus' words are powerful. They are words of authority. They are words that we must heed if we know what is good for us. Jesus was deliberate in what he said about salvation. In Mark 16, verse 16, Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes not will be condemned. He was deliberate in saying that. Jesus is deliberate in what it means to follow God. He said, man shall live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. So when we ask this question, who is Jesus and what makes him such a wonderful Savior? He's deliberate. His words matter. They're powerful. But not only that, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, and I want you to look with me at verse 32. Some Greek individuals came, they were not Jews, and they wanted to see Jesus, as we just talked about in John 12, verse 21. And Jesus begins a long discourse, and in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says this, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And he goes on in verse 33, John does, and says, This Jesus said, signifying by what death he would die. So Jesus is talking before the cross. He's talking about how he's going to die. He says, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. What do you learn about Jesus? He is our Savior. He is a wonderful Savior, but a Savior he is. The word draw in John chapter 12, verse 32, it means, it's a Greek word that means to attract, to pull, to influence. 
There is drawing power in the cross of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters and friends, that's important for the church to hear today. We preach Christ and him crucified. First Corinthians chapter two, verse two. We preach about a savior who died for us. And what attracts people to Christianity is the fact that they realize Jesus died for me. Someone was crucified and died for me. The church does not need a lot of gimmicks and games and all kinds of gadgets to influence the world. What the church must do today is the same thing the church has always needed to do. We need to hold up the cross. We need to hold up a wonderful Savior before a lost and dying world. Before people who are confused, they need to see the cross. For people who are self-righteous, they need to see a Savior who was crucified for them. For people who are suffering and are hurting, they need to see the suffering of the Savior of the world. If I am lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. Whatever we win people with is what we win them to. And if we win them with the cross of Jesus Christ, if they realize that the Savior has died for them, then they are converted to him. That's our goal. That's our mission. He is our Savior. Lift him up and he will draw all men to himself. What's Jesus really like? Turn in your Bibles next to John chapter 13, and I want you to look at verse 15. As you just look at these glimpses of Jesus through the account of the Gospel of John, it's amazing the diversity of angles with which we can see our Savior. He is wonderful in every respect. There was never a person as perfect as Jesus. He never sinned. He never did anything that would have violated God's will or that would have run contrary to God's plan for his life. In John 13, verse 15, this is the night when Jesus is about to be crucified. And they are all around Jesus and his disciples at table. And Jesus, to the surprise of everybody, he gets up from dinner and he wraps a towel around his waist and he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes the feet of all of his disciples. And the disciples can't figure out what to make of this because they've been following Jesus. You're our teacher, you're our Lord. Teachers and lords and, and important people, they don't humble themselves to wash feet. Now look at what Jesus says in John 13 verse 15. If I then, he says in verse 14, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Who is Jesus? He is our example in everything. And he is especially our example when it comes to servanthood. When someone becomes a Christian, they must start to follow the example of Jesus. And the example of Jesus is one of a servant. I have left you an example that you should do as I have done to you, he says. When Jesus served, his service was thoughtful. Everybody around the table had dirty feet, but only Jesus thought to actually wash anyone's feet. Jesus' service was humble. Jesus could have said, I am God. I am about to die for all of your sins. I am going to suffer this night. Jesus could have said, somebody else do this job. But there was never a job that Jesus says, I'm too good for that. I'm above that. It was humble service. And this is the pattern, the consistent habitual pattern of Jesus' life. 
His servanthood was a consistent thing. He went about doing good. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 tells us, Jesus is your example when it comes to being a servant. And the very best thing you could ever be in your life is a servant of God and a servant of your fellow man. Jesus is our example in that. Turn to John chapter 14 and look, if you would, at verse 6. When we think about what Jesus is like, a wonderful Savior, John 14, verse 6, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is exclusive. What do you mean by that? He's exclusive. I mean... Jesus said, listen carefully, there is one way to salvation. There are not many different approaches by which we can be spiritual, and that's all okay. Jesus says there is one way, I am the way. There is one truth, there's such a thing as truth, and there's such a thing as lies. I am the one who has the truth, Jesus says. There is a life, and there is a life that leads to destruction. And Jesus says, I am the life that leads to eternal life. And there's only one avenue, there's only one way of approach to the Heavenly Father. There's only one way we will ever be right with God. No one can come to the Father except by me, Jesus says. When we think about a wonderful Savior, our pluralistic culture, where your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, our pluralistic culture is offended by the claims of Jesus, but Jesus is not going to change or alter his claims just because we are offended by them. Jesus says there's one way to be right with God. You're not going to find that way unless you come through me. He's exclusive in that respect. He's demanding in that respect. We need to give Jesus permission to rule our lives because that's the only way we'll ever find access and hope to our Heavenly Father. Turn to John chapter 15. You know, as you look at Jesus, you see all these dimensions of him. And in John 15, 11, in the shadow of the cross, he says these things as he's talking to his disciples. In John 15, verse 11, he just pauses in the middle of his conversation and he says, you know why I'm telling you these things? He's talking about being the vine and they are the branches and they're to bear fruit. He says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy, my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. He's about to suffer and die for the sins of the world. That's not a happy thing. It was the most difficult event of Jesus' existence. And yet in the shadow of the cross, he talks about joy. He is our source of joy. There is joy to be found in being a New Testament Christian. Does that mean that we don't suffer? No. Does that mean that we don't go through difficult times? No. Does that mean that we don't shed tears? No. But there is still in the midst of all of our sorrow and our suffering and the difficulties of our lives, there is still a constant presence in our lives. It is Jesus Christ. And he is our source of joy. We can have joy in every circumstance because we know that we know him. In Philippians 4, verse 4, the Bible says, Rejoice in the Lord, Jesus, 
always, and again I say rejoice. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Galatians 5 verse 22. Jesus is a source, a wellspring of joy in the life of everyone who turns their hearts and their lives to Him. No matter what the world does to us, it cannot rob us of our joy in Christ. Again, we suffer, we sorrow, we go through difficulty, but we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18. And the Bible gives us these promises because we know Jesus. It says in Romans 8 verse 18, for example, it says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which awaits us. Because we know Jesus. He's a source of joy. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Turn to John 16 and look at verse 33, the last verse of the chapter. This is a long lesson, a discourse, words that Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the shadow of the cross on the night he's going to be crucified. And in John 16, 33, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That means difficulty, sufferings, challenges, tribulation. But be of good cheer. I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Who is Jesus? He is our source of peace. Not only does he bring joy, not only is he a constant source of joy because we know him and have a relationship with him, but he is a source of peace in every trial, in every circumstance. That's a wonderful thing to stop and contemplate. Because of Jesus, I can have peace. You know what the Bible says to you as a Christian? It says when you're suffering and you don't know what to do, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5 verse 7. It says, the Bible does, that when you pray about everything with thanksgiving, that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Jesus says to you, you're going to struggle in this world, you're going to have trouble in this world, but you can also have peace. Be of good cheer. I'm giving you peace. I have overcome the world. Peace then is not so much about having everything around us all neat and orderly. Rarely is that the case in most of our lives. Peace rather has to do with a relationship again that I enjoy with Jesus Christ through the gospel. He's our source of peace. Look at John 17. Notice in your Bibles, if you would, John 17, verses 20 through 22, as we think about what Jesus is like, what kind of a person is he? In John 17, beginning in verse 20, Jesus is praying. In fact, I want you to notice this. He is our Savior, a man of prayer. And I want you to notice in 17, verses 20 through 22, what specifically Jesus prays for on this occasion. He says in John 17, 20, Father, I do not pray for these alone, talking about his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
So what he's praying for in John 17, 20 is not just the apostles who were present 2,000 years ago with him, but he's praying for all of us as well because we believe in Jesus because of the words that the apostles wrote in Scripture. He says, I'm praying for you. And what's he praying for us? Look at verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. You can mark it down. One of the big themes of scripture is the unity of believers in Christ. When we come to Jesus and obey the gospel and we decide we're going to submit to his authority, we're going to submit to his words, there is unity to be found in that approach to understanding God's Word. Wherever division exists, wherever there is separation and heartache and distance, it is because somebody, and maybe both parties, are not submitting fully to the Scriptures. Jesus prayed, and He prayed to His heavenly Father that all who believe in Him might be one, that there might be unity. When we think about our wonderful Savior, let's not ever go too far from his heart. He had a heart to make people one in him. Next, turn to John chapter 18, and I want you to notice verse 36. Now we come to the trial of Jesus Christ. He was arrested by the Jewish authorities. And they wanted, they hated Jesus, and they wanted to put him to death. And they, they couldn't do it on their own because the Romans were in charge. And so they had to take Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate. And Jesus went before Pilate, and Pilate was the only one who could say, thumbs up, thumbs down, Jesus lives or Jesus dies. And so Pilate is interviewing Jesus, and he says, you know, these people are saying that you're a king. Are you a king then? And look at what Jesus responds in John 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Who is Jesus? He's king. Jesus is a king sent by God. And he has been established upon his throne. He established a kingdom. And it's not like any other kingdom that has ever been established for a number of reasons. In the kingdom that Jesus established, he is the only king who will ever reign. He's not going to die again and leave his kingdom to somebody else. Every other kingdom, whoever the king, whoever the queen is, eventually they die and they leave it to somebody else. Not Jesus. He's king eternally. Not only that, but his citizens come from every tribe and tongue and people on this planet. When you decide to follow Jesus, when you decide to obey the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. You become a citizen of heaven and you are loyal to the king, Jesus Christ. You could still be submissive to the government under which you live in this world, but you become a citizen of the next world as well. Jesus is king. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that when we became Christians, God transferred us out of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's important. 
When you obey the gospel, you become a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the king. We take our orders from him. We listen to his word. We submit to his authority because he's the king. He's the one who has the right to rule. He's the one who knows best. And he is a benevolent and a good and a kind, but an authoritative king. He's king. His kingdom is not of this world, but you can be a part of it. Turn to John chapter 19. In John 19, we find the account of Jesus' crucifixion. The moment when they hung him on a cross and they left him there to die for hours until finally he gave up his spirit. And in John chapter 19, verse 30, we find that critical moment after Jesus had hung on that cross for over six hours. Enduring intense suffering and and pain. The Bible says in John 19 verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. What do you think your last words might be? All of us, one of these days, are going to leave this world and kind of wonder about that. You don't want to be morbid, but what do you think your last words might be? Jesus chose... This word, it's one word in Greek, tetelestai. It is finished in John 19, verse 30. And what's communicated, what's conveyed by that phrase? He is the author of our salvation. Why did he say it is finished? Well, certainly his suffering was finished. But Jesus understood that when he died on the cross, he was dying. And here's the word vicariously. He was dying in our place, a vicarious death. He was dying for you and he was dying for me. He was offering to us a gift, a gift of salvation. And he was saying, when I die in this moment, it is finished. Your salvation has now been written. Your salvation is now available. He is the author of our salvation. He died for us. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, the prophet wrote about the suffering Messiah. And he said, he was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Jesus suffered and died in our place. He bore our sins so that we could be saved and we don't have to bear our sins ourselves. It is finished. That's why, by the way, There's no other way to God but through him. Because Jesus is the only person who was ever qualified to die for your sins. He's the only one. Nobody else could ever do that for you. The people that love you the most, they've got sins of their own. They can't die for your sins because they've got to deal with their own. Jesus was sinless. And he willingly gave himself for you and for me. It is finished. The author of our salvation. Turn to John chapter 20 and look at verse 28. As we look at the question, who is Jesus? What makes him a wonderful Savior? John 20 verse 28, Jesus appeared after his death. He rose again on the third day and he began to show himself to his disciples and others. I'm risen. I've come back from the dead. And he shows himself on this one occasion to Thomas, his disciple, and As Thomas examines Jesus, he's convinced 
this really is the Savior. He really did rise from the dead. And Thomas says in verse 28 of John 20, my Lord and my God. Who is Jesus? Put as simply as we can put it, he is God. He is the word that became flesh to dwell among us. John chapter 1 verse 14. He is fully human in the sense that he came to this world and he knows what it's like to be you and me. He suffered in all the different ways we suffer. He experienced what it's like to live in this difficult, sin-sick world. But at the same time, he's fully human. He's also fully God. And when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus does not then rebuke Thomas and say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong, Thomas. I'm not God. Jesus never says that. In fact, he affirms it. Jesus accepted worship. Nobody else but God is worthy of worship. Jesus accepted worship from people. The Bible says in Colossians 2 verses 9 and 10 that in Jesus, in him, dwelt all the fullness of deity bodily. Brothers and sisters and friends, we need to nail it down in our minds. The Bible presents to us Jesus as divine, fully divine, possessing all the qualities and all the attributes of God in bodily form. He's God. And when Thomas said, I've examined him, he's risen from the dead, he is my Lord and my God, you and I need to be willing to say the same thing. Who is Jesus? He's God. He's divine. Turn to John 21 kind of the epilogue to the Gospel of John. After his resurrection, the disciples, the apostles, they go back to fishing. They don't know what's next. Jesus hasn't given them a lot of instruction just yet. And Jesus goes and meets them as they're fishing. And do you remember what happened to Simon Peter? Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. And when Peter saw Jesus on trial, just a couple of chapters earlier, before Pontius Pilate, Peter stayed far away from Jesus. He didn't want to be associated with Jesus. And people said, hey, Peter, you were with Jesus, weren't you? Aren't you one of his disciples? And three times Peter said, no, no, I don't even know Jesus. I don't know who he is. He lied. He denied the Savior. Now in John 21, Jesus comes to Peter specifically, and he gives him an opportunity an opportunity to restore the relationship. Look at John 21, verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus came to Simon Peter, who just a few days earlier had denied him, and he said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Brothers and sisters and friends, Jesus is a wonderful Savior because he forgives sin. I find hope in men like Peter and Paul. Peter who denied the Lord and Paul who persecuted the Lord. If Jesus is willing to forgive Peter for denying him, and if he's willing to forgive Paul for persecuting the church, there is nothing that you have done that Jesus is unwilling to forgive. There is nothing that is in your life that is so awful, that is so terrible that Jesus says, I won't forgive that. 
He offers to you forgiveness and peace and joy and a way of life that leads to eternal life. He offers those things and he offers them freely. He offers them without any kind of hesitation or reservation or having to jump through hoops in order to, in order to meet. Jesus says, I offer these things. All I ask is that you come to me, that you die to yourself, that you submit completely to my will. That's all he's asking of us. Turn our lives over to him. Give him permission to be the king of your life. He'll forgive sin. And you can find freedom and peace and joy and forgiveness in him. Jesus really is a wonderful savior. And as people think about him and they think about what it means that he came to this world, so much of what the Bible reveals about him gets overlooked. Let's not be like that in our study of the scriptures. Let's let the Bible inform us about the wonders of Jesus Christ and don't ever lose the sense of awe and devotion that comes from a deeper study of him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there's a process to becoming a Christian. You need to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Believe that gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ really is the only way that you could be right with God. Upon doing that, you need to repent of your sin. Turn away from the life that you've been living and the sinful decisions that you've been making so that you can confess Jesus Christ as Lord and be baptized in water. When someone is baptized, when they're immersed in water, they experience what the Bible describes as the new birth. They are born again to walk in newness of life. John chapter 3, verse 5. When you're baptized, you enter into a relationship with a wonderful Savior. If we can help you this morning, make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing this invitation song.